Good morning and welcome to Auto Retail Live. Thank you very much for taking time to join us in our series of lockdown webinars. Uh, the theme today is reopening the dealership. And this, of course, follows the announcement and the discussion following Boris Johnson's uh, speech on Sunday night. Now, to be clear uh, with our conversation today, we're not intending to focus during our time together uh, on the specifics of the regulations. You can find those, of course, online um, on the government website and indeed through the auto retail uh, website as well. Um, today's discussion is very much around the management and the preparation um, of the business walking towards the 1st of June. Um, be great to have your questions. We have a number of questions already, uh, uh, but if you would like to have something specific raised with the panel today, um, simply type it into the dialogue box on your screen or you can use the hashtag ARNLive, and our editor Tristan will keep an eye on um, tweets uh, coming through to the programme. So in the next 30 or 40 minutes, uh, plenty to discuss and a really um, high-quality panel. I'd like to say a welcome back to Robert Forrester, the Chief Executive of Virtu. Uh, we're also welcoming back Sandra Martins from uh, Radius Law, thinking about some of the legal aspects uh, of the situation. Catherine Fares, the Operations Director for Auto Trader, is with us. Uh, and of course, Jeremy Evans, looking at the issue of customer communications um, from a marketing perspective. But let's dive in uh, with a man whose face has become more familiar uh, over recent days and weeks, Robert Forrester, the Chief Exec of Virtu Motors. Uh, Robert, we've we've heard now what Boris is saying. First of June seems to be up there in lights, probably. Um, how do you balance this uh, cost versus revenue as you go about thinking about opening? Well, I think the first thing to say is we are not fixing the 1st of June as a date to reopen our English showrooms because we don't think that date is fixed 100% probability. Uh, it's an indication by the government based on what happens over the next few weeks. And we don't know actually how the phasing of non-essential retail is going to be. Are we first phase or are we not first phase? Clearly, there's a lot of lobbying going on around that. But I, I think it would be foolish to for me to put a statement out this morning and say we're opening on the 1st of June. I don't think that is the case. I think actually the complication then is where does Scotland fit in? Because Scotland appears to be on its own path, which is an added complication for a business because we've got um, dealerships in Scotland. So I think from our perspective, if we take after sales, there is no question that after sales is open. Um, we have made the decision of ramping up uh, service activity. We're bringing more and more technicians in We'll bring in service advisors back. And actually, I would anticipate by the 1st of June, we'll be pretty well there. Uh, booking levels are exceptionally strong. We're between three, 5,000 service bookings a day, uh, very much pushing uh, those service bookings into uh, post the 26th of May. So as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. We'll be fully appropriate health and safety, which is obviously a big issue. More guidance came out on that this morning. Uh, in terms of sales, far, obviously far more difficult. The showrooms are sh closed and shut. Uh, the delivery point on home deliveries is very clear, but the delivery point on uh, click and collect probably less clear. Um, and I know there's a lot of work going on around clarification of that. Um, but clearly, we need more salespeople in the business. We had 600 internet sales inquiries yesterday. It's broadly 50% higher than last week. Uh, and we are taking significant amounts of orders. I mean, we sold 1,500 cars and vans in April. I imagine we'll at least double that, if not treble it in May. So 
uh, we have to balance the furlough income with the opportunity that we're presented with. So what kind of data are you using to decide how to furlough or unfurlough? I'm not asking for company information, but in terms of thinking about the, the decision-making, how do you decide um, from your spread of sites, you've got after-sales working, which to unlock from from sales perspective? Well, the answer is when you've got 133 dealerships, you don't make that decision with one man sat at the top because I don't believe in Soviet centralised planning. Um, so clearly we have a, a structure and we have a philosophy and we look at the data. So service bookings over the next week, chicken and egg there, obviously because service bookings relate to the resource you've got in place actually, so a bit more tricky. Uh, what level of inquiries we've got, what conversion have we got, have we got the light sales uh, resource? I mean, I think people have probably seen the tweet, you know, three pieces of information I wake to, to every single morning. How many phone calls did we take centrally? How many service bookings did we take? How many internet inquiries did we have yesterday? That's my six o'clock, uh, three bits of information that get landed. So I think you've just got to look at the data and make economic decisions based on, as the Prime Minister said, common sense. There is no formula here. There's no right and wrong answer, actually, because that's one's ever done this before. So you've just got to do what you think's right in the hour and the day that you've got in front of you and use as much data as you can. But it's an art as well as a science. You're watching the Auto Retail Network briefing uh, on reopening dealerships. Our next guest is Sandra Martins from Radius Law. Sandra, welcome back. Uh, we spoke at the start of this situation when uh, furloughing was just a word that we were getting used to again. Uh, what are the most important points to consider from a business as you consider unfurloughing? Sandra, we seem to we don't seem to be hearing you. Apologies. I don't know whether you. Oh, right. Can you Splendid. hear me now? Sorry, Sorry yes, about loud that. And clear. I, I doubled muted myself. Um, <laughs> apologies for that. Um, Not a problem. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Um, so the main consideration is your business. You have to look at what your business needs. So that's where you start. Um, and you need to decide what is really essential to keep your business going. So that is your prerogative. So you need to decide those things and then decide what that impacts with sectors, which parts of your business are impacted by that. Um, the, the guidance is still the, the case that uh, unless it's impossible to work from home, uh, you uh, need to allow people to work from home. Obviously, that's a little bit more difficult in uh, in a dealership uh, circumstances. But if you uh, need to have your dealership open, obviously you will, to keep your business going, then you need to be um, carrying out risk assessments of um, your uh, workplace, and of the different roles that people will be required to do, the ones that you really need to keep your business going. Um, the idea is to try and remove the risk as much as possible. If that's not possible, then you need to be reducing it uh, and to avoid the risk of contagion. Um, so what you have to do, uh, first of all, it's quite clear from the guidance the government has issued, which uh, deals specifically with different sectors, including retail and vehicles, for example, you need to be reading at least those two uh, pieces of guidance 
to see what requirements specifically apply to your business. Uh, but you will be required if you don't have anyone in place who is a health and safety uh, representative, you'll need to be uh, appointing or allowing the employees to appoint one. And that person and also the individual should be consulted on any measures you put in place. So the thing is to risk assess and then you need to identify what the risks are uh, with help from your employees because they're the best place to to identify that and then see how you can remove that risk or reduce it to allow as many people as possible to return. Uh, obviously, you need to follow the guidance on distancing or what measures you need to put in place to reduce the risk. Um, now, it's um, obviously there's an end there because um, there will be different people in different circumstances and you need to be looking at particular um, sectors that uh, within your employee base that you have furloughed. So if you furloughed people who are shielding, uh, if you furloughed in individuals uh, who were on, on maternity leave, uh, anyone who's pregnant, um, anyone who's likely to be disabled, um, so you'll have to have special uh, considerations for that. So health and safety legislation will apply generally. Your duty of care to provide a safe system of work will apply. And also will be your duties to make adjustments to uh, anyone who may be disabled. So that's likely to be people with serious health conditions. But it may be people with not so serious health conditions who you think uh, should be able to do their job but they may be worried that if they catch the virus, they could be uh, particularly vulnerable. So basically it's consultation with health and safety in, uh, representative. It's then consultation with your managers and those on the ground that know what is involved and what the risks are. And then it's consultation with uh, the specific groups of individuals you want to bring back and try and find ways of reducing the risk for each and, uh, for each of them. And some of them will have to go further than with others. Um, so anyone who is potentially disabled, uh, anyone who's pregnant, anyone who's returning from maternity leave, and those will be the particularly um, groups that you have to look after more. Sandra, that's a very detailed approach to planning. Then, of course, the planning meets um, individuals and and it's likely i would suggest that some people um may feel unwilling or unsafe or unsure about actually returning back into that no matter how safe the workplace is as best you can what happens in that situation of somebody who who doesn't want to return in that environment well employees and arguably workers are protected uh, in those circumstances, there's specific protection in uh, the Employment Rights Act uh, that allows somebody who reasonably believes that there are uh, circumstances of imminent and real danger uh, in their workplace that would basically they cannot they they can't avoid uh, would lead to um, you know serious uh, danger to them. So obviously, COVID would be would fall squarely into that. So the risk of contracting the virus, and that becomes a bigger consideration for those who are, have health conditions and uh, those who are falling the vulnerable group and the extremely vulnerable groups and also pregnant women. Uh, so pregnant women have additional um, rights and uh, both employment rights and health and safety legislation. And if, you, if there is a risk uh, of them contracting the virus that cannot be removed, then they have an additional right to go uh, on unpaid Oh, sorry, on paid leave, on full pay uh, for at least six weeks. Uh, so that that is one thing to consider. 
Um, and the other uh, issue is that if you um, reduce their pay or insist on people who are potentially disabled returning to work, um, and you're not doing enough to uh, safeguard uh, their health and safety, you could uh, face claims in the employment tribunal for a thing called detriment for health and safety uh, related uh, matters. And if you do dismiss somebody, that dismissal, because they asserted that right and they refused to return in circumstances where it's reasonable to refuse to return because they were seriously worried about their health, then there's also a potential claim from for dismissal. Uh, and that's a claim that applies irrespective of length of service. Um, so basically, you need to try your best to find a way for the person to return. Whilst they can't return, if you've taken them off furlough, they should be paid full pay. And um, if it's impossible for them to return safely, you may, you may be in a position where you have to let them go, but you can't just let them go because they're refusing. You need to go the extra mile to try and make that happen. And if that's not possible, then you can take measures to let them go. It's a complicated picture, and that's why we're gathered today uh, here at Auto Retail Network to look at the issues around uh, reopening the dealership. Um, I'd like to turn to Catherine Affairs uh, now from Auto Trader. Catherine, at this time, everybody likes data. Uh, Robert has his six o'clock in the morning data. We want to know what the consumer thinks, and I suppose there are issues around trying to read too much into the numbers. But, but tell us, first of all, what are the numbers telling us about consumer behaviour at the moment? We're seeing really encouraging signs in terms of consumer demand on our platform. We're now back to up over 1 million unique visitors per day across all of our platforms. That's growing about 15% week on week at the moment. And we're still down slightly on pre-COVID levels. We've got some way to return to get back to them. But we're hopeful that if the current trajectory we're on continues for another few weeks, then we will we'll get there soon. More encouragingly, we're seeing really good engagement on the platform. So whilst total visitor levels are still down, um, we're seeing ad views coming back up and approaching flat year on year. So the number of adverts for different vehicles that consumers are looking at on our platform. And we're also seeing two of our strongest lead indicators demand. So the number of leads, so email or chat or text inquiries that we're delivering to our customers, they're now running up. 25% year on year. So we're delivering more inquiries, more demand to consumers, or to our customers, sorry, digitally than we were at the same time last year. That's partly a reflection of the fact that um, consumers can't walk in, that they can't turn up on the forecourt. And normally about uh, two thirds, we estimate from our research of the demand that we would send to our customers would be through walk-ins. And they're typically, they have a very high propensity to buy and are great um great customers to have on on the forecourt so that that lead volume is now representing you know, consumers that can't walk in and people that would have always submitted digital inquiries so we expect that 25 percent and year-on-year growth rate to continue over the coming weeks and potentially to to grow further and we've had two main questions that people have asked us around um consumers and potential consumer trends the first one being um, are consumers still going to have um, the confidence to be buying a car or considering a purchase at the moment? And from the independent panel research we run, we're seeing positive signs that actually 
consumers, only 16% of people with ask were worried about affordability in the current climate. And only 2% of in-market car buyers that we asked were now not going to purchase a car because of the current climate. So encouraging signs in terms of um, consumer confidence. Um, the second question we're asked a lot is, well, so Boris obviously made the announcement on Sunday, which was very positive about um, consumers um, using a car to travel to and from work and generally concerns over personal safety, meaning that more consumers were likely to choose the car over public transport. And have we have we seen that reflected in our in our platform anywhere? Um, the answer is other than in aggregate in terms of overall demand, we haven't seen um, big structural shifts in the nature of cars, the price packets that people are looking at, the make model mix that or the, the body type that peak consumers are are looking at. We saw some price packets fall further earlier into the crisis. So low price cars is a good example. Cars under um, £5,000 fell faster and are recovering a bit faster. But we haven't seen any really big spikes in demand in different categories as, as yet. Um, in the independent panel research, we have seen that um, we do expect there to be new consumers coming to market that wouldn't otherwise have been in market. So 56% of UK driving license holders that don't currently own a car said they would now be looking to come back into market and consider buying a car, having that not been a consideration for them even a few, few weeks ago. So we expect new consumer groups and new segments of demand to be out there that haven't previously been there, but we're not seeing that change the composition of search behaviour on our platform just yet. A great summary. Thank, thanks, Catherine. Of course, direct engagement with the customer uh, is important, and with us uh, is Jeremy Evans from Marketing Delivery. Jeremy, the messaging at the start um, of, of this lockdown period was kind of reassurance and you know, trying to give some comfort and, and some insight to consumers. How is that messaging changing now, given what Boris has said uh, on Sunday? Um, it's all been fairly fluid all the way throughout the, the crisis, really. I think in any change of circumstance, it's always the communication that gets criticised the most rather than the actual action that, that gets taken, whether that's flights being cancelled because of fog or whether that's uh, government positions on, uh, on on international pandemics. Uh, within our clients, within the industry, those that have left their communications on but have changed the message according to the situation are the ones with the highest engagement. So uh, we have clients whose engagement with sales emails um, are still as high as they were before uh, lockdown. Um, kind of mirroring, I guess, what uh, both Karen and Robert have, uh, have said uh, at the moment. Um, those clients who opted to turn messaging off until the situation became clearer, uh, I've got a bit of catching up to do um, in terms of getting those uh, customers back engaged again. But the, um, you know, we often get asked about messages and is it right to be sending sales messages to people at, at this point in time? Depends on the customer. Uh, our answer is always, if it's relevant to the customer, there's a chance they'll open it, read it, and engage with it. If it's not relevant, um, it'll get binned and, and, and won't get won't get uh, won't get considered. So, if you know you have customers who were in an active inquiry with you before lockdown, then it's 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 absolutely right to, to keep them informed of stock prices, finance positions, um, because 
as all the research shows, most of those people are still looking for a car and will be looking to transact as soon as they can once dealerships are open. Um, there are messages around MOT and, and you know, my car was due in MOT, what do I do now? So getting that data up to date, rolling those dates, some clients are offering kind of safety health checks until the next MOT is due. So again, it's about relevant communication. So if the customer's in a sales cycle, yeah, yeah. Uh, actively market them for, for sales and keep them informed about what's going on. If they're in a service cycle, talk to them about the service. So relevance um, data segmentation really is um, is the key to successful comms uh, and not just irritating comms that, that miss the mark. The right message to the right person at the right time, the, the dream of marketers yeah. worldwide. Um, we've got some questions coming in. Robert, um, question to you from uh, Tim Swindon, Advantage Motor Group. Is it appropriate to encourage customers to visit workshops for routine servicing, regardless of whether they're key workers or not, or should workshops remain closed for routine servicing until we're fully open across all uh, sales and service outlets? Sorry, Robert, that was, um, I don't know if you're... Sorry, I put it to... on mute. Very quiet. Oh, okay. Sorry, can you hear me? Right, I have to go back to first principles. Um, garages, old-fashioned term, but I think that's what it says in the document from the government, are open. Quick fit at the end of my street is open and has been all the way through. And we took the decision we were doing key workers, essential organisation vehicles and the vulnerable. Uh, we have started to unlock that now because I think actually I think I can now drive as a non-key worker, if I am a non-key worker, to a beach 40 miles away, have a walk and come home. I can drive my car. There are no restrictions on that in England, different Wales, Scotland, actually. So I think in England, there is a very good case for now for saying we can open our service departments. I think we probably could before, but we didn't for all customers. Uh, and there's certainly demand there. And I think that is now socially acceptable, actually. Uh, I think it's a slightly different position potentially uh, in Scotland where I think the regulations are less clear about general driving and uh, the stay at home message. But certainly in England, I don't think there is any impediment. And our, our assumption is really that from, from this point on, we will be doing regular servicing and repairs. Um, question from Simon Oldfield. Still stay with you, Robert, if we could. What sort of additional cost per site per week or month do you think will be needed to manage the, the social distancing regulations that, that are now coming into force? Uh, we think the cost of PPE, and there is some interesting stuff actually around PPE, because I think the industry is likely to go far more rigid on PPE than the government regulations will require them to. And I think that's for reassurance as opposed to strict health and safety is my personal view. But uh, we think it'll cost around £300,000 per month for our sites. And we've got 133 sites. So I think you can do the maths to work out what the average cost per month is. Uh, we'll have to see where that stabilises. You know, we will be providing customers with face masks if they desire them, etc. There is clearly cost of social distancing, and that's the big cost, which is the opportunity cost of limiting the numbers of people in the showroom, uh, moving to appointment systems, uh, et cetera. And that's an opportunity cost, but it's the cost of, uh, of the business under these new rules and the new normal. Um, so I think we prefer to be open with social distancing than closed. So we have to play the deck of cards we've got, I think. And then you're back to balancing this whole issue of how you balance the costs 
um, in general versus the revenue as you're ramping back up? Yes. Um, and we will have to just man manage that. Uh, the, the answer will be clearly, I think it's best to get going than sit in hibernation. I don't think it's very much fun for the people we furloughed to be sat in hibernation. They're itching to get back. Uh, there's clearly customer demand, as we've heard from Autotrader, and we've seen ourselves. And we have a job to do in after sales, where there have been cars parked up for eight weeks, and some of them aren't going to go, and we'll need fixing. So I think there's actually a moral side to this as well as an economic side. But clearly, you've got to be, you've got to watch the economics as well, and you've got to make logical decisions. You're with Auto Retail Network, the reopening the dealership uh, webinar. Your questions more than welcome. Uh, you can send them through to us in two ways, uh, using Twitter, the hashtag ARNLive, uh, or using the keyboard and, and questions coming through. And thank you for your questions. Uh, David Anderson from John Mulholland Motors. Uh, Sandra, this one will be for you. What happens if the government lift restrictions midway through a second period of furlough and the employee can then return back permanently. Is there any provision to say that the minimum furlough period will be the lesser of three weeks or until normal work resumes? Very technical issue, that one, Sandra. That's a very good question. Um, the guidance on furlough says that uh, furlough can be extended as long as the initial period of furlough is three weeks. So the initial period must be a minimum of three weeks. Subsequent periods don't have to be a minimum of three weeks. So uh, that, and that can be extended until, and the employer can claim the grant from HMRC until the scheme uh, is removed by the government. So I think the answer to that is if the, at least the initial period of furlough lasted 21 days or three weeks, then uh, if you've extended furlough beyond those three weeks, you can bring them back uh, when uh, the government says you can bring them back, subject obviously to the issues I mentioned earlier, that you've carried out your risk assessments and that you, um, you have the role. So we have to look at the terms of the written uh, furlough agreement, if you have it with your employees, as to what conditions you've applied to getting them back to work. Um, and what does it say about, do you have to give notice to them before um, furlough ends, or can you just bring them back immediately? Now, that's not going to be practical or possible uh, to bring people back immediately, and I, don't, I wouldn't advise you to do that. I think you should give as much notice as you can and uh, engage with them to see how you can bring them back. David, hope that answered your question. Sandra, stay with us uh, for a question from Brian, um, from Stephen Eagle. Uh, thank you, Brian. Are large dealer groups with good geographic spread okay to treat each site as a separate entity for the purposes of redundancy consultation periods? Uh, that's a, another very good question. It depends on, um, you know, the setup. Um, the more independent the site, the better. Um, there's always uh, an argument to say that the whole uh, of, uh, you know, the, the company, the business should be considered together. But if there's some sort of some level of independence between the sites and they have their own management, um, you know, they have administered their own payroll, uh, the more independence and more autonomy they have, the more likely it is that there'll be separate establishments and you can treat each uh, uh, one as a separate establishment for purposes of consultation and uh, redundancy rights. 
Thanks, Sandra. Robert, there's some some questions coming through, similar similar themes around um, getting back into the business. The, the, the technicalities, by the way, of the, the, the dealer regulations are available on the government's uh, website. So we're not digging into what you can read about elsewhere. But um, Cliff Della um, asked the question, hi, Cliff, who in the dealership should police social distancing? Is that the host um, or security? And perhaps, Robert, if you tie that one in also with um, uh, Luke Stork from Sandy Cliff, uh, how do you decide which to bring back, which two service advisors out of five? So I don't know if you could pick up both of those, Robert. Uh yeah, I mean, in terms of, and we've gone through this in quite some detail, so we have an absolute definition. Uh, the, gen the general manager of our dealerships are responsible for health and safety. That is an absolute core part of their job role. They actually have specific financial bonuses based on health and safety, and they're responsible for the health and safety. So they are responsible for social distancing. So we've actually come up with the concept of a greeter which in my mind is the manager, it depends on the size of the business, actually has a formal rotor. So a manager will be on, on the door of the showroom, making sure that social distancing is in place. Now in a very small dealership, that will clearly be the general manager. In a larger dealership, it'll need a, a more formal rotor in place. And clearly we need to apply common sense in that. But we are very clear that it is the general manager who's responsible for social distancing regulations. I mean, in fairness, everyone is responsible all the colleagues responsible, but I think it is useful to have one person who's, uh, who is nailed to the mast, as it were, that being the general manager. And the second question, just repeat the second question. So if, you, if you've if got five service advisors and you oh, need yeah, two, how do you choose? You yeah. yeah, I mean, in, in our experience, and we must have brought 1,300 people back now, um, you know, they're itching to come back. Um, we've had no examples of somebody not wanting to come back and I think to some extent that belies the fact that we've, got, I think, got a fairly robust sort of process and procedure around it. Um, and we are picking probably the best people suitable for that. Um, so, you know, if you've got three service advisors and, and one is a junior apprentice, you, you probably bring your, your most senior person back who can add probably the most value. Uh, and actually, we're if we've got too many sales inquiries, we're not necessarily bringing back a sales executive. We're maybe bringing back the sales manager, actually, to do that role and to, and to add that level of value. But it's very much down to the general manager to make those decisions localized. Who is the best person to fit? Clearly, we've got to take account of vulnerability. Uh, we haven't come across many issues of that. We're very clear who our population, I think we've got, we do have people with the letter, and they are a very specific group, and we're going to have to treat those very, very differently. We've also got the issues of, uh, in the short term, of uh, school children. Uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, people can't come to work if they've got children of school age who who need homeschooling, and we're going to have to be very cognizant of that. Uh, clearly, while the furloughs in place, that 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 makes life somewhat easier in that respect. I just think we need to be pragmatic and have large, large doses of common. Thank you, Robert. Uh, Sandra, question for you about the issue of redundancy. I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's a reality, perhaps, in some cases, where after a long period of, of, of revenue, if the business has not got the uh, funds to survive, how does a business go about preparing um, for redundancies, which they may have to face at this time? Well, um, thank you, Al. Uh, it brings back to the previous question you asked. So you look at each site and what you need per site. Um, and
and uh, assuming that each site, well, first you need to decide whether each site is an establishment, and I recommend you get employment advice from an employment specialist on that point. Uh, but assuming each site is an establishment, then uh, you uh, look at uh, who you need going forward and who you may have to let go, uh, and you try and determine roughly how many people may be losing their jobs. That's the first question. So if, because that will depend on how much you have to do in terms of consultation. So if it's likely that there are 20 or more people being made redundant in a period of three months or less, uh, then you need to engage in collective consultation. So I would be surprised if there are many employee representatives uh, up and down the country in dealerships that are, uh, have authority to be consulted on redundancies. Um, so if you do not have one in place, you need to give that option to uh, employees to elect those uh, representatives to be consulted. Uh, on um, on the changes. So then once that process has been done, so when that person has been elected, it might be the employees decide not to elect and that's fine. Then you consult with it. You send information directly to each of them. Um, then you consult with the representative. Uh, you uh, look at the criteria they're going to use to select people and the normal rules apply. You need to apply objective selection criteria. You look at performance. You look at uh, disciplinary records. Uh, you look at what you need in the future, what skills you're going to need. And you would uh, apply the criteria to the groups you've identified in the normal way. Uh, you discuss that with your representative and you discuss that then with the individuals who are at risk and you carry out the normal consultation process you would with the ind each individual uh, until you are in a position to uh, make them redundant. Um, and then you need to, of course, honour the statutory redundancy pay entitlements if they have two or more years service, plus any notice pay and any holiday pay they're entitled to uh, on termination of employment. You're watching Auto Retail Network's webinar on reopening the dealership. Um, questions still coming through, and you're more than welcome to send them in directly or via the hashtag ARNLive. Um, Robert, uh, come, come back to you. A lot of uh, questions around this theme of planning for delivering of cars, whether that be um, service um, or sales cars. Is, is it practically possible to um, be delivering cars to uh, customers at home? Uh, well, we've made the decision we're not doing service collection delivery, at least for the first month. Uh, so uh, we are going to wait and see on that one. It's a question of bringing resource back to do it. It's a question of can we do it safely? And we actually thought we've got a lot to do. Let's do the let's do it in bite-sized chunks. So we'll evaluate collection delivery. We will not be doing that in the next month. Uh, in terms of uh, home deliveries, uh, my issue with home deliveries is the part exchange uh, and we again are evaluating that. Uh, we are doing home deliveries using uh, third-party logistic companies presently, and we will see how, how that uh, works out. I actually think there's a fascinating bit of work needs doing. Uh, one question was posed to me recently was, what are you doing to prepare the business for the second lockdown? And that is a very interesting question. And should I have a fleet of low loaders ready to do home deliveries with Virtue, Bristol Street Motors branding uh, come the second lockdown? And that's a, a question for a conference call later. <laughs> There's been so many variables, Robert, at this time. And 
the whole thing is a moving feast. What, what's your perception been as to how the industry has worked at this particular time? Because there's so many different parts in this complicated um, supply chain. No, there is. One of the great positives of this entire episode has been, one, how the NFDA has really come into its own. Um, the NFDA has been having conference calls almost daily. In fact, there is one at the moment and I'm missing, uh, where we've really unified the voice of the NFDA with biz, but also with the SMMT. And I personally think the manufacturers have done a very good job in terms of supporting the sector uh, and actually working together with the NFDA and the large groups, and also with Biz, actually. I think Biz hasn't done a bad job, apart from it didn't seem to have a voice in the political quad that actually made the decisions, but that, that's separate. Um, so actually, I think the SMMT and the NFDA have worked very tightly together, and I very much hope that continues, because we are a lot more powerful as a sector when the sector's working together as opposed to working apart. And actually, it's been a joy to see just how much working together there's been. And the NFDA has really come into its own uh, I think it's been a very useful source of information and source of political lobbying. Uh, and the big groups have worked through the NFDA. There's not always without some contrast, as you can imagine, some of the people uh, in terms of some fairly robust discussions, but they've all been good fun. Uh, but the NFDA has done a great job. So some positives to take to take from um, a dreadful situation. I'm going to turn to Catherine um, there's at Auto Trader. Uh, Catherine, Alison Simmons from BMW Financial Services. Hi, Alison. Uh, thanks for your question. She was interested in the split that Auto Trader is seeing between new and used car hits um, on the website. Can you give us any insight into that, Catherine? I can. Um, I our new car data is um, is interesting, and I'll talk through it. I'm not sure it's wholly representative, just be, just because our We've now got about 50,000 new cars on our platform. We get about a million unique, well, over a million unique consumers viewing them and engaging with them each month. We've seen continued pretty good growth in our year-on-year -year new car data, but that's for us relative to our youth car product. Our new car product is relatively still in growth phase. It's a, it's a younger, less well-established product, and we're still making product changes, making consumer experience changes, and changing our marketing approach to that product that means we're driving more audience into new cars. And um, what we see from, or I guess there's two opposing schools of thought on how that, how we'll see that mix shift. There's a kind of strong voice out there that's suggesting that this new consumer demand that we may see in the market is likely to be focused on used and is likely to be focused on potentially lower value or city runaround type vehicles. And then there's the opposing um, relatively strong point of view as well, that actually there is a load of new car stock in the UK today that needs to be sold. And one of the best ways the manufacturers could support the industry would be by really getting behind um, contributions and fantastic finance offers to um, support the industry to retail those, those vehicles. So. I think it's too early to tell yet where how that mix shift is going to trend. Um, but certainly we've seen both new and used demand and audience performance uh, running on a similarly recovery trajectory over the last few weeks. Thanks, Catherine. Jeremy, a question thinking about messaging, and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, the government is, uh, has talked about, I mean, we had the rather unusual um, situation of a prime minister saying, don't use public transport. Um, so the opportunity, obviously, is, is for car usage and car sales. And 
uh, hopefully cleaner and greener versions. Um, is that something that kind of comes through with the messaging and as something should be used quite heavily at this time, Jeremy? Yeah, I think it depends on, on where that customer sits. So if it's a customer who's already in, engaged in an inquiry process with you, um, probably not so much. If it's um, going out to kind of a conquest audience specifically looking for, for those kinds of people, then yeah, um, we, we do quite a bit of work with Facebook on um, identifying audiences, um, finding people who are in market, whose behavior online suggests they're looking, um, they're looking at vehicles. So when people are at that early research stage, then um, putting those kind of messages in front of them that um, you know, haven't had a car for a while, talk to us about the choices, um, uh, making it a, a more gen general message about different types of automotive technology and power trains that are out there at the minute rather than the more specific that we would do for somebody who we know is either visited a dealer website or already engaged in a, in a visitor where we'd we'd get far more specific with the messaging around what we know they're looking for and what we know they're uh, they're engaged in um so yeah as uh, again um sounded a little bit like a broken record it's, it's horses for courses it's the the most relevant communication for that person depending on where they are uh in that in that journey and if if you're actively targeting people who are new to the car buying journey, then yeah, that, that message is, uh, is valid. Robert, the message from, from, from Boris there about not using public transport presumably um, gave some impetus to sales. Um, I don't suspect you're about to start retailing bicycles off the back of it, but have you seen any other trends in, in vehicles? Well, Boris's statement was the single best advert for motor retailing in the history of the country. To have, you know, 20 odd million people listen to Boris saying everyone should go out and buy a car was awesome. Um, we've seen a big upsurge in bikes, motorbikes. Our Honda motorbikes business has been robust all the way through the lockdown, and we're, we're doing a lot of deliveries uh, of bikes. And it does make you think probably we've only really got one in this country, and that's around London, actually, uh, maybe Manchester um leads whether the messaging from a marketing perspective could be slightly different um and i think we'll have to look at that uh, but we're seeing all kinds of trends actually i'm quite optimistic about new cars as it happens um we've seen new cars as a percentage of overall inquiries growing over the last few weeks i think we're averaging around 60 new cars last week in terms of orders in retail uh, and that's growing and more and i think the manufacturers you know they've got a lot of stock uh, they've got to get the factories moving. They're clearly, you know, hopefully going to lobby the government into some sort of incentive action. And uh, the only way of getting these factories going and getting employment and the advanced uh, industrial economy that we have moving is to move new cars through the system. And we are going to be pivotal to that, um, clearly as an industry. So, you know, we need new and used cars to be buoyant, actually, in the new world. The new world will be tough enough. We certainly can't be reliant just on used. You know, the new car job has to be moving as well. Stuart Leatherborough picked up on something there, relevant actually from Autotrader. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for your question. Um, are you confident with regards to sourcing fresh stock um, and being able to dispose of unwanted part exchanges at this time? And I, I mean, I guess that's the basis of your business, Robert, but where are you feeling in, in confidence levels well, about that at the moment? Well, the, the concept of unwanted part exchanges is a very interesting concept. There, there was an auction last week. Uh, online with BCA, we sold 52 cars. The bit that sold actually was a very cheap stock. The cheap stock went nicely. The, the more expensive stock didn't go quite so well. 
uh, if there's going to be pressure, and let's just say that the manufacturers come out aggressively on new cars, then we'll see finance deposit allowances, very competitive payments. That could have an impact on nearly new pricing on used cars. And I think that's the thing we've got to watch. About cars less than £7,000 retail value, I think they will fly off uh, the forecourts. Getting hold of them, I think, is <laughs> maybe a challenge. I don't think there's any, any challenge getting hold of nearly new stock. And I really think that's if there is going to be used car value pressure, that's the bit that we've got to watch. And it'll be different by franchise. Um, we're in a false market now in terms of used car values. There really isn't that much of a market. Um, uh, I, I think you can play the argument both ways, really. Are we going to see supply shortages in new as the factories are low and they have supply chain problems and part suppliers go into administration as one this morning? Or are we going to have ample supply, big incentives and pressure on nearly new residuals? I, I don't know, actually. I think it's too early to tell. Quick operational question from uh, Ella Telford. Hey, hi, Ella. Thanks for your question. Following the, the discussion and your comments earlier, Robert, about not doing service collection and delivery, so what services will you offer then? Waiting appointments, courtesy cars, refreshments, and so on. How are you managing that? I know it's a little bit in the detail. Uh, the initial but burst, the initial, no, quite a lot of detail, but we've thought quite a lot about it. Uh, I think I'm right in saying last time I read it that the SMMT and FDA guidance said no tea and coffee. Uh, and the reason for that was very simple. How on earth can we be providers of tea and coffee when Costa Coffee is not open? That is a bonkers situation, in my opinion. So I think that's what the guidance says. We are certainly adopting that strategy. Uh, we are uh, doing courtesy cars. We will be doing courtesy cars. We'll be doing a reduced number of courtesy cars because they will need sanitized between each customer. So to make sure we can do that sanitization, we're going to limit the number of courtesy cars. Um, and as I said, we're not doing collection delivery. In terms of waiting appointments, uh, they will be uh, probably reduced in number in the short run in order to keep the uh, numbers of people in the showroom down. Uh, we've looked at the spacing of the customer waiting area. There is certainly no magazines, no newspapers, and the television switched off. We've got into that level of detail, actually. <laughs> well, as we would expect. Sandra, a question for you. Um from Kieran Douglas of Heritage Automotive. Has there been any further clarity on the furlough scheme regarding regular commission payments? This was something that did come up at the beginning. Anything further has emerged or not? Uh, I'm afraid no more news on that. There's some conflict between the guidance saying that it's provided it's a contractual entitlement, uh, it should be included in the 80% uh, calculation. Uh, of salary or the two and a half thousand pounds. Um, but the direction, the treasury direction, which is the only piece that's actually uh, a piece of legislation, uh, which is actually enforceable, uh, seems to cast doubt on whether uh, commission should be included. I'm afraid we haven't had any more clarity on that. Um, uh, it'd be interesting to know, um, you know, if people have have actually uh, included commission or not when they've um, applied for the grant from the government but uh, we haven't we don't have any more answers on that i'm afraid okay thank, thank you sandra i'd like to just trot around the panel uh, and look for a tip as we approach uh, hopefully the time when the dealership is going to reopen is it the first of june or beyond uh, catherine what what's your top tip uh, today for viewers um well i guess the big theme that's probably most relevant for us is that we're seeing uh, more and more consumers saying they're going to spend more and more time online and nervous about visiting physical forecourts. And I don't think that will change immediately when they reopen. So more than ever, if 
if stock isn't online, whether that's your own website or our website or other marketplaces, then it's just not visible and it's not for sale. And similarly, we're then seeing, as I said earlier, our lead volumes are up 25% now year on year. We expect that to grow. And so really looking at processes for how you manage, filter, drive conversion through that lead funnel and have the resources in place to manage that volume so that there is a really strong pipeline so that when the market comes back, you're ready to convert and transact as many of those consumers as possible feels important and more important than it ever has. Jeremy, uh, what's the marketing tip this week? Uh, I, I'm going to give you two um, because I always take more than I'm offered. Um, one is get to know your data. Um, so, uh, you know, I've spoken about the relevance of different messages to different people. So get to know your data and build your suite of messages that are relevant to where people are in either their inquiry cycle or their, um, their, their ownership cycle and make sure you deliver the right message to the right people at the right time. Uh, and on delivery, make sure you can deliver it. I'm seeing lots of emails from dealerships um, going to my spam folder, uh, and that suggests they haven't set up the domains correctly. So there are you know, domain keys and and, uh, and domain settings that need to be set to make sure emails um, look legit to the ISPs and the volume of email traffic is, is probably at an all-time high. So to get through all of that and make sure it's delivered, uh, make sure that the technicalities of your, your email setup um, for your marketing messages is correct. From a legal perspective, Sandra, final thought, something to take away? Uh, risk assess, risk assess, risk assess is the, uh, is the main uh, issue. Be prepared, uh, not just for getting people back into work, but also for the second wave, if there is one, if you have to lock down again. Um, and uh, be also prepared if you need to make redundancies. Uh, look at the numbers, if it's 20 or more people, then you may need to look at electing employee representatives and you need to allow enough time for consultation. So if you have between 20 and 99 people at risk of redundancy, at least 30 days to consult. If it's more than 100, hopefully you won't come to that. But if it is, you need to allow at least 45 days. Thank you. And Robert, final word. I think this bit's been the easy bit. Actually, I suspect the next bit is going to, I mean, the government was found the lockdown, getting into a lockdown easy and getting out of it quite hard. And I suspect we'll find the same. So my advice is a couple of bits of advice, really, I'm trying to follow. Keep your mindset right. So be very careful where you get your information from. Uh, fake news doesn't just happen in America. It happens here. And I see complete nonsense written, actually, on websites and in, in some media about what's going on. Rely on good sources like the NFDA, like the SMMT, like manufacturers. That they, they will do due diligence and the information will be correct. And I think that's really important. We don't go off racing into complete nonsense. Just keep yourself fit as well. I think we've got to sleep a lot and we've got to exercise a lot. We've got to eat well because it's going to be tough and we will need to be mentally very strong. And General Patton said, tired generals are always pessimistic. And I think as leaders of business, if we've got to be optimistic, you know, this will pass. Uh, many businesses will survive, most businesses will survive, and there will be a good market for cars. The Prime Minister has done the polit a party political broadcast on behalf of Motor Retail. Upbeat from Robert Forrester, I would expect nothing less. Uh, this has been Auto Retail Network, uh, our live series of webinars uh, reopening the dealership. Thank you for joining us, for taking time to be with us today. Um, sorry if we didn't get through all of your questions, but uh, there were a considerable volume, and I think we 
we cover a number of the themes. Um, you will notice that there is a, a box within this webinar. You can click to register for the next one, uh, which takes place next Thursday, the 21st of May, uh, when we'll be joined by Peter Vardy uh, and also Carl Werner from Motor Novo Finance. But on behalf um, of Tristan and Francis and the editorial team here at Auto Retail Network, thanks to our guests Robert Forrester from Virtu, Catherine Fairs from Auto Trader, Sandra Martins from Radius Law, and Jeremy Evans from Marketing Delivery. Stay safe. It's lunchtime. Do take your break.